My name's Todd Daly, uh, a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary. I am filling in for Randy for what will closely be the last time, at least in the near future, as he continues to recover. Uh, he's doing great. Um, we should be thankful for that. Uh, but in the meantime, you have to put up with me for at least one more Sunday. Um, when he talked to me a month or so ago about uh, doing a sermon on Barabbas, it sounded like a great idea. And then in the last week or so, maybe not so much. So uh, the first thing we should do is pray. Father, take these words and make them yours for your healing to challenge us, but ultimately for your glory. Amen. Uh, Tennessee native Christopher Daniel Gay has acquired a nickname, the Little Houdini, for probably a good reason. Anyone who can steal an 18-wheeler, large construction equipment, and a tour bus has got to be someone special. In 2005, he broke out of a Nashville prison in order to visit his ailing father, and then two years when he escaped again, uh, for the 13th time, he went to go visit his mom. Gay was being transported to an Alabama prison for stealing an RV when he escaped from two police officers by somehow freeing himself from a full set of shackles at a South Carolina dress stop, a rest stop, sorry. He stole a pickup truck, drove it 300 miles, then hot-wired an 18-wheeler and drove that 100 miles to uh, north of Nashville, being chased more or less the entire way. He refused to pull over until he reached his mother's front yard and the truck got stuck in the mud before he jumped out and fled into the woods. The police were still in hot pursuit while well, he headed to Nashville and then proceeded to steal Crystal Gale's tour bus. <laughs> Somehow it occurred to him to, uh, well, he thought it'd be a good idea to take this bus to a NASCAR race in Lakeland, Florida, where he told the track manager that he was there to pick up Tony Stewart, the legendary race car driver. <laughs> and it almost worked. Authorities eventually became suspicious and they called the police and he had to abandon the tour bus and fled yet again. It turns out he just wanted to see his mom who was dying of cancer. And so he finally turned himself in after he'd been promised that he'd get to see his mom first. He became so popular that the details of this escapade have been recorded in a 2007 bluegrass song entitled The Ballad of Christopher Daniel Gay. Tells us something about his life. Come all you good people and a little story I will tell of Christopher Daniel Gay. We Tennesseans know him well. His mama said his heart was just as big as his head and he became a car thief just to keep his family fed. See, the gays were always dirt poor. They lived in a trailer with drop cord electricity and only occasionally had well water. They did laundry in the creek and ate wild plums for breakfast. 
Leanne, Chris's older sister, remembers dividing a single boiled potato four ways so that all the kids could eat. She remembers all four of them sharing a bed and remembers complaining one night that her stomach hurt and how her other brother, Eddie, tore off a piece of notebook paper and gave it to her, saying, chew this up real good and swallow it. It'll make that pain go away. Now, their mama loved them dearly, Leanne says, and would send them running into the woods any time the state came around. Nobody's sure how the stealing started, but it was likely related to hunger and probably some other kinds of pain. The Deputy Ed Luther showed up at their trailer one evening to investigate a report of stolen poultry only to find Christopher and his brother boiling a rooster over a tire fire in the hubcap of a 55 Chevy. And one cold night in the early 1980s, the two brothers walked out behind an old barn with their father's 22 rifle, hungry, dirty, and desperate. They wore shoes that were held together by tape and twists of wire. This would be their last hungry night. Chris's younger brother, Eddie, raised the rifle and touched the tip of the barrel to his brother's forehead. He would shoot his brother and then himself. That was their pact. And so Christopher closed his eyes tightly and waited. And then he heard a whimper, and he opened his eyes and saw that his brother was crying, and he couldn't go through with it. And Christopher couldn't kill either. Though he now keeps to himself, he often talks to God. Help me escape, he'd say, and I'll feed a homeless person. And once he did escape, I mean, he's escaped 14, 15 times now. Uh, he escaped and gave uh, a, a McDonald's bag full of Big Macs and a large coffee to a homeless man who was sleeping on a bench outside the Grand Old Opry. And the last time he broke out, he volunteered at the Nashville Rescue Mission. Not a place you'd expect to find an escaped convict, putting slices of wheat bread on plates. He may be one of the most popular escaped convicts of all time. Barabbas might fall in, in that category as well. And so if, if you'd like to turn to this story, it's on page 852 in your Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. 
And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Christopher Gay might also be described as a modern day Barabbas, popular with the crowd. This could be said of Barabbas likely too. But in this text this morning, we are confronted with two responses to opposition, hurt, and hunger, the way of Barabbas or the way of Jesus. Their ways could hardly be more different, right? Barabbas and Jesus present us with two options for responding to opposition that we encounter in its various forms. This represents two ways of power. But there's something definitely more going on here as well, which will take us right to the epicenter of the Christian faith. Because if we only talk about Barabbas and Jesus as if they're two parallel paths, then we will have missed the gospel altogether. For in this brief moment of history, their paths cross. And through Jesus' actions, the course of history have been irrevocably altered. The story of Jesus and Barabbas, I think, will also challenge our concept of power by teaching us what true power looks like. But first, we need to talk about the way of Barabbas and what it means for us in our own kingdoms and our own quests for power. In order to understand the way of Barabbas, we need to know a little bit about this character, who he was and what he did. And here immediately is a problem. He has no words in this story. He has no voice, no choice over what happens to him. He doesn't even name himself. The text says, at, uh, Mark, in Mark's words, he says, this is the one called Barabbas. In other words, this was a name given to him by someone else. Yet while Mark and the other gospel writers mention very little of this figure, they do give us just enough to sketch a portrait. Who was Barabbas? Well, in the Bible, you know, names mean something and often reveal something about who a person is. Admittedly, Barabbas is a generic name, a very common name. It's Aramaic for son of the father. The prefix bar stands for son. Like as in other biblical figures like Barnabas or Bartholomew or uh, the alternative name for Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah. The, the word that Jesus used to identify Peter after he had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Other languages have their own prefixes as well. In Arabic, it would be Abu, as in the notorious Avu Harib prison of West Baghdad, or Mac in Scotland for MacDonald or Mackenzie, and O in Ireland for O'Malley, or a long time in our family history, a long time ago, O'Daly. Abba simply means father, 
We don't know anything of his father, however, but it suggests that this Barabbas was probably a chip off the old block and that this rebellion kind of runs in the family. As I mentioned earlier, he was given this name, which suggests also that Barabbas was well-known. And Matthew kind of confirms this for us by calling him a notorious prisoner. He was in, that he was in prison tells us something also about his occupation. But again, specifically, we don't know what he did. We're not given much here. Probably because Mark's immediate audience was well acquainted with his work. In verse 7, Mark only says that Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. It's just called the uprising, and apparently this act of rebellion must have been well known, so well known that Mark didn't need to say anything else about it. It's just the insurrection. Barabbas was among the rebels who had committed murder. The uprising. When Michael Jordan hit the game winner in 1985 in the playoffs against the Cleveland Cavaliers to eliminate them, it became known, at least in the Chicagoland area and in Cleveland, as the shot. The shot, that's all you need to know. You can Google the shot and it will come up. Preferably wait 10, 15 more minutes, but... um, (laughs) Now, typically, Romans would crucify rebels, and it's likely that uh, Barabbas and his fellow cohorts were awaiting death on a Roman cross. The other gospel writers make it clear that Barabbas himself had been charged with murder. John refers to Barabbas as a robber, but that term can easily be misunderstood or misconstrued. Uh, The original language there refers to something that's much closer to a social bandit, someone who is driven by political reasons. Uh, The historian Josephus in the first century uh, wrote, uh, wrote about Barabbas and used that same name to describe anyone who was involved in insurrection against the Roman Empire. These bandits robbed the wealthy in order to survive and gain popularity by giving some of their bounty over to the poor and oppressed. These were the Robin Hoods of the land, champions of justice for the common people, attacking the wealthy who were in alliance with the Roman authorities. One New Testament scholar says that these figures are the symbol of resistance as well as a champion of justice in righting the wrongs for the poor villagers with whom these, these cohorts remain in close contact. He may have been a high-minded patriot, decided that armed resistance was the only option left. He was not merely a common criminal, but a well-known man with a popular following. Following, I'm sorry. Uh, Indeed, he was a leader. Since he was uh, singled out for amnesty at this point, that would be a common procedure, as Pilate initiates when the Jews protest. But in order to help us gain a little bit 
a better understanding of the situation that Barabbas was facing, it will be helpful to consider just a little bit of historical background information at the, the economics and the climate of this time. For historians routinely note that in first century Palestine here, this is probably one of the most violent centuries in, in the periods of Jewish history because the tension between the Jews and the foreign powers had been brewing already by this time for centuries, going back to 63 BC when the Roman Empire took over Jerusalem and the general Pompey took it by force, desecrating the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple by entering it as a Gentile and by deposing the high, key, uh, high priest and king of Judea Aristobulus, who was then paraded around in display. At this time, in 63 BC, Jerusalem came under Roman control and the heavy taxation started almost immediately. Yes, the Romans treated the Jews with some modicum of respect and tolerance and deference for its ancient origins. They were exempted from paying homage to the Roman gods. They were given certain allowances to practice and observe the Sabbath. They were also excused from the cult of emperor worship. But in spite of these concessions, Roman taxes were added onto the tithes and other taxes that the residents already owed to the temple and the priesthood. In this political situation, the peasant producers effectively suffered from double taxation from both the Jewish wealthy class or aristocracy and from the Roman government. If you were a farmer, you were now subject to this double taxation, which likely added up to about half of your earnings. And while all of this was going on, the wealthy were collaborating with Rome for safety and power and influence. So this fundamental conflict was created between the Jewish ruling groups and the Romans on one side, and the peasantry and the poorer classes on the other. And over the next century, these tensions would only rise. Enter Herod the Great from 47 BC to 4 BC. His iron-fisted rule was ruthless. He eliminated all pretended and perceived threats to authority. And after he was designated the king of Judea by Rome, he went and took Galilee and Jerusalem by force. Despised by the Pharisees because he was a half-Jew and fostered alliances with Rome, he had lots of other enemies as well, both from within his family and outside. He beheaded 45 of the wealthiest aristocrats who had supported the previous ruler in Jerusalem, taking their property and their wealth. He had 10 wives, several uh, of whom wanted to make their sons next in line, creating tension and strife. He was perpetually paranoid, always afraid of losing his power, so much that he had one of his wives killed, and then had his mother-in-law killed too, for good measure. He had several of his own sons strangled to death because he wrongly suspected them of plotting for his throne. He had to rewrite his will five times because he kept killing off his sons. This is the same Herod who ordered the slaughter of the children at Bethlehem because he thought his power would be threatened by a baby Messiah. 
Caesar himself supposedly said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Nevertheless, this Herod was also responsible for building the temple, which was largely seen as his form of atonement for having massacred so many Jews. So when he finally dies in 4 BC, things might actually be getting better. History tells us they got worse. His son Archelaus would reign for the next decade, but before he could even be officially installed, he massacred 3,000 pilgrims who were attempting to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. His treatment of the Jews was so brutal that Mary and Joseph were warned by an angel to settle in Galilee rather than Judea when they had fled from Egypt because of Herod. So out of the frying pan into the fire. And in the coming decades, this kind of ferment is going on and it's, it's spurning revolutionary figures to come on the scene and to attempt to throw off this Roman yoke of oppression. A, a, a yoke of oppression that was in part perpetrated by the aristocracy and the Jewish elite. So these revolts would become more and more organized and more intense until finally uh, in AD 70, the Roman Emperor Titus had had enough. And Jerusalem was flattened and the spoils were carried off to Rome. You can travel to Italy today and go to the forum and see the arch that was erected in his honor. And if you look closely at the sides carved in there are the Roman soldiers carrying off the spoils of the temple of the people of God. And so here we are. You thought it was politically bad here. As Mark tells us in verse 6, at the feast, which means the Passover, um, nothing could be more ironic or more painful than to consider this time of the year uh, where you're supposed to be celebrating Jewish liberation from oppression and authority and from the ruthless hand of Pharaoh, only to be in bondage yet again to an even more powerful enemy in your own land. So we should not be too quick to judge Barabbas for insurrection and murder. For this may not have been entirely unjust. How difficult must it have been to see the Romans occupy his homeland and endure their taxation all while the religious elite and the wealthy continued to kick up their feet and relax? Imagine what it would be like to be occupied by a foreign power to be limited in expression in one forms of worship, to have to give a significant portion of your salary to a government whose causes no longer matches your own values. Imagine what it'd be like if we were invaded by another nation who limited our freedom in this ways, doubling or even tripling our taxes while taking away our freedom. Imagine having to work on the very farm you grew up on, but seeing your house occupied by another family, even as you were forced to work that land as a slave laborer, just to make ends meet. We don't take kindly to those kinds of thoughts. After all, we're Americans, right? These colors don't run. 
We often tend to assume that we automatically speak for the free world. We are endowed with a certain sense of superiority. You know, our neighbors to the south, that is south of the 15th latitude, you know, south of the equator also, remind us you know, that they're Americans too. How would we respond to a foreign invasion? I don't think it's hard to imagine. We actually don't have to imagine because it's been done for us. Um, in uh, a thoroughly mediocre film in the 1980s entitled Red Dawn, um, the plot line's serious. America had been invaded by the Soviet Union, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Um, undoubtedly the best August 1984 release of all time. Um, in high school, it all made sense. You know, if you're going to attack America, it makes perfect sense to go to rural Colorado to a high school. Um, but the movie opens, right, with paratroopers landing on this high school and guns blazing and people dying until a group of renegades led by Patrick Swayze, Leah Thompson, Charlie Sheen, and Jennifer Grey are transformed from innocent high schoolers into a ruthless group of guerrilla fighters named after their mascot, the Wolverines. And by the end, there's only two of them left who manage to hold out until help arrives. And I, I've just given the plot away, but really you shouldn't waste your time with this movie anyway. Um, <laughs> right, but, but look, th th there's, there's been nothing new in the movies for the last 50 years. It's the same plot over and over and over. We, we, we love this stuff because it's our identity. We don't take, we don't take junk from anybody. I had to be careful about the word there. Um, <laughs> we're Americans, we fight, we defend what's ours. So when we look at Barabbas, we're probably looking at ourselves. I think Barabbas can serve as a kind of mirror. And I think his behavior can, summar can be summarized with three points if you have uh, the handout uh, that, that was been printed, they're, they're on there for you. Uh, Barabbas represents someone who seeks power through violence, is popular with the crowd, but is ultimately a pawn. Power through violence, popular with the masses, ultimately a pawn. How often do we go the way of Barabbas? Of course we want to distance ourselves from terrorists, but we live in a culture that praises a world or we live in a culture that praises violence and a world that increasingly respects the use of force. Barabbas represents those of us who resort to violence for a cause. And while our political situation is vastly different than the one that Barabbas found himself in, he is a mirror to those of us who rely on the destructive use of power in order to secure a measure of peace in our own little kingdoms. How often does our behavior suggest that we are more children of our fathers than children of God? Oh, we may reject the label insurrectionist and murderer, but how easily do we kill with our words or our tone of voice or our posture or our absence or even a glance? usually under, again, some perceived threat to our little kingdoms and those limited realms over which we think we have control. 
But there's a whole lot of damage that can come through that. And I'm sure we've all been horrified by the images of what took place in Syria last week. Children dying and struggling to breathe after exposure to deadly sarin gas. Some of us are quite adept at launching subtle yet malicious missiles of sarcasm against those closest to us that are also very toxic. Our wife, our kids, an ex-spouse, in-laws, boss. How easily it is to withhold affection as a weapon to demonstrate our own disappointment and anger in an attempt to show who's really in charge. We can be controlling and manipulative in ways that suggest we're far more comfortable in the company of Barabbas than we are Jesus. And make no mistake, our words and actions to our kids can be every bit as toxic to a kid's soul. And routine exposure to hurtful words can inflict the kind of damage that poisons and can take a lifetime to get over. Ask any therapist or child psychologist. I suspect that Christopher Gay's issue with theft came from his own pain in wanting just to be loved by his dad. Of course, we challenge, we teach, we confront, we discipline, maybe even badger our children when it's necessary, but we should never belittle. Spills are easily cleaned, broken dishes can be replaced, grades really aren't all that important, even stupid boyfriends can be overcome. Fixing a kid's broken heart or reviving a crushed spirit is a lot harder. But thankfully, the right words spoken in the right way are every bit as powerful to build up and edify as the wrong words are able to destroy. The writer of Proverbs reminds us that a word spoken fitly is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So what about the way of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to say that Jesus died for Barabbas, who represents for us the path of violence in the face of injustice? First, I think this gives us an alternative picture of how we might respond non-violently to injustice or to any affront to our own kingdoms, our own realms of sovereignty, Clearly, Jesus does serve here as an example for us at the very place where the lives of Jesus and Barabbas intersect. Jesus here exemplifies true power. Barabbas is taken prisoner against his will. Jesus became a prisoner in accordance with his father's will. In Mark's telling of Christ being handed over to the Roman authorities, Jesus is eerily silent After identifying himself as the Christ before the high priest in chapter 14, setting up this, uh, or guaranteeing this conflict, Jesus has little more to say. And after a final evasive answer to Pilate's question in 15, chapter 15, verse 2, Jesus is done. He's silent. How interesting it is that these two figures, Barabbas and Jesus, have no words 
in this part of the drama. The entire social interchange here in Mark is between Pilate and the crowd, led on by the Jewish high priests. Neither Barabbas nor Jesus utters a single word. We might be tempted to think they're both pawns, subject to the whims of the power uh, struggle between the Jewish priesthood and the Roman government. But their reasons for their respective silence could hardly be more different. Barabbas' quest for power has left him without a voice in the face of the Roman Empire. Barabbas' constraints are imposed on him from the outside, from Rome, and reflect his powerlessness. Jesus' silence is self-imposed as an expression of his power. Barabbas is silenced. Jesus simply refuses to speak. The irony here is that Barabbas is indeed the powerless one who could do nothing to change his situation. Jesus freely became powerless by the world's standards, thereby unleashing the power to transform all lives, including the life of Barabbas. We'll get to that in a minute. But if Pilate attempted to exercise his power, I'm sorry, Barabbas attempted to exercise his power by fighting evil, Jesus exemplified true power by submitting to it. And what happens when his story intersects the life of Jesus? Or better, what happens when Jesus' story encounters the life of Barabbas? He's set free. While we might be tempted to view that freedom as a vindication of sorts, we know better. For Barabbas' release is an arbitrary act of injustice. Even Pilate recognized his innocence. What evil has he done, he says in verse 14. Jesus' actions here represent the upside-down nature of the kingdom, which often works against the logic of our world and the basic structures of human existence. We, I think we intuitively know this, I mean, how easy it is to fill in the blank or complete these phrases that speak to the ways of the world. Feel free to join in uh, if, you, if these come to you. I won't be able to hear you very well, but we've heard these a million times. What goes up must come down. This is one from uh, my programming days a long time ago. Garbage in, garbage out. You get what you pay for or deserve. That's a double, good. Um, your wife asks you, does this outfit make me look fat? Yes, that's right, yes. This is not a straightforward question at all, unless you've been enrolled, unless you're enrolled in Introduction to Fashion 220 at the University of Illinois, this is really not a question about fashion, is it? It's a question about relationship. It's actually kind of an indictment that we haven't been paying attention. Honey, you make every outfit look spectacular is probably a good place to start. I mean, we've all married up anyway. Um, okay, a couple more. Um, haste makes waste. You do the crime, you do the time, pay the time. Well, most of the time, except in this instance. For here, we find exactly the reverse going on. 
Here, Jesus' actions reflect, again, the upside-down nature of his kingdom. He allows himself to be handed over. Barabbas is released. Jesus is taken prisoner. Barabbas killed. For his beliefs, Jesus is beaten. Barabbas has a new lease on life. Jesus gives his life away. And here in the life of Jesus, we see power personified through what we might call non-violent resistance, which to the world often looks like mere passivity. But this Jesus is more than a mere example. If Jesus is only an example for us, it suggests that we have it within ourselves the power necessary to squelch the violence that lies deep in our hearts. And and liberal theology will often say as much, you know, that the cross is an example of how we too can respond to violence when we're threatened or offended or marginalized. But if we stop there, if we say that Jesus is just a mere example, we are keeping him at arm's length. For the Bible says that God's dealing through us, or with us, through Jesus Christ, actually transcends what took place on the plane of history. For beneath this hidden drama of Jewish conflict, or beneath the drama of this open-ended, open-air Jewish conflict with Rome, and the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas is a deeper more significant story of divine transaction involving the sins of Barabbas, and our sins, and the sins of the entire world. This takes us into systematic theology. Um, buckle your seatbelts. It won't, it won't be long. Um, technically, this is known as the doctrine of the atonement. The atonement. Of all the theological terms that are out there, this doctrine of atonement is one of the very few Someday it'll appear. Oh, there we go. We're, we're getting close. It's, uh, it's one of the very few that is English in its origins. It was actually first used by Shakespeare. And if you take the word apart, you kind of get the meaning. It means to be at one. At one meant. And that's where things get really uh, messy and complex because there's uh, a lot of different passages of Scripture that support a lot of different understandings of what it means when we answer the question, what does it mean when Christ died for us? What does it mean that Christ is for us? And this is just a smattering of uh, theories based on scripture, atonement theories of how we are made one with God. I'm just gonna spend 20 minutes on each bullet point and we'll have, I'm just kidding, (laughs) just kidding. We're going to focus on uh, substitution. This is probably the one we know best. It is the hallmark presentation of the Reformation. Um, When we say that Jesus became our substitute, we're saying more than just that Jesus was a replacement for Barabbas. This is no mere prisoner swap. It is a divine transaction where the sins of the world are laid on Jesus in order that we might become sons and daughters of God. 
And we don't pick this up directly from the Gospels, we pick it up from the commentary on the Gospels in the Apostle Paul and his interpretation of what took place on Calvary. He writes to the, second, writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Several hundred years ago, Martin Luther spoke of the law as an executioner who finds in Christ a sinner. Here again, the for us takes center stage. For Luther observes that unless Christ had become sin, the law would have nothing to do with Christ or no right over Christ whatsoever. But because he became sin for us, the law moved in and judged him worthy of death. And in his commentary on Galatians, Luther has this to say. The merciful father said, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross, we could add the thief who got away. In short, be the person of all men, the one who has committed the sins of all men, and see to it that you pay and make satisfaction for them. Now the law comes and says, I find him a sinner who takes upon himself the sins of all men. I do not see any other sins than those in him. Therefore, let him die on a cross. And so it attacks him and kills him, and by this deed, the whole world is purged. Christ is not just our example, but our substitute. And this is the heart of the gospel. It's why we practice communion and celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Because when Jesus died for Barabbas, it means that Jesus died to put an end to the cycle of destructive patterns of behavior that flow through sin that are passed down through all generations. Because Christ has dealt with our sin on the cross, the power to pursue the way of peace and righteousness is now opened to us. Because of the cross and our changed relationship to Jesus, we are enabled and empowered to love in the face of open hostility and persecution and cold shoulders. But it ain't easy, and we're not faced with just a simple uh, yes or no. We're faced every day with choices, the way of Barabbas or the way of Jesus. It's, it's interesting to note that some manuscripts in Matthew's account of this event include Barabbas' first name as Jesus, which makes this comparison even more sharp. Which Jesus do you want? The son of Abba or this would be Messiah? How do we respond to the injustice and disorder that affects our lives and afflicts us? The way of Barabbas admittedly comes quite easily. It comes naturally. It appeals to our sense of righteous indignation, our desire for retribution when we've been wronged. The way of Jesus, on the other hand, is the way of love and submission to God. 
And it's no secret either that the way of Barabbas keeps us in bondage. So goes the prophetic refrain of the angry song from the Smashing Pumpkins. In spite of my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. While the way of Jesus rests secure in the bonds of love, Barabbas stands ready to kill for his cause. Jesus is willing to die. Both sons of the Father, but radically divergent paths. I think the early church father, Origen, probably said it best and could serve as a summary for this whole sermon. Could have saved you a half an hour. Um, <laughs> with everyone who does evil, then, Barabbas is set free and Christ is bound. With everyone who does good, however, Christ is set free and Barabbas is bound. For ultimately, you know, we'll all either be mastered by anger or love. And after his release, Barabbas disappears from history almost as quickly as he appeared, never to be heard from again. I wonder if he made his way to Calvary in order to watch his two fellow rebels make, meet their end. I wonder if he saw Jesus hanging on the cross that was meant for him. I wonder if he ever took the time to reflect on how he had been set free. Was it a random wrinkle of history, some stroke of luck? Was it a form of divine intervention? Would he pick up where he left off rebelling against Rome? I wonder what he made of Jesus. Did he see Jesus as some unlucky fellow a dim-witted hick from the country who somehow got on the wrong side of the religious authorities, an innocent teacher who found himself caught up in the cruel machinery of the Roman Empire, a failed rebel like himself. We know Barabbas was released, but we never find out if he was truly set free. And like Barabbas, as we enter this holy week, we stand at a distance from Calvary and are faced with a choice. Will we be daughters and sons of our earthly fathers, or will we be children of the crucified king? Let's pray. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father, to whom be all dominion and glory and power, now and forever. Amen.